Welcome to episode 23 of Behind the Sport. It's another rally edition as we wrap up the 2020 Make Smoking History uh, Forest Rally. Our guest today, um, in addition to Brent, who's over there hiding away, how are you doing? Good, man, good. Um, is Dean Herridge from Maximum Motorsport. Uh, he was on hosting duties over the weekend for the event. And uh, he's a previous ARC champion, and we're going to have him on next. No, it'd be wicked. Good to talk to him. Yep. And um, our guest this week has just, our original guest has just had a four week, or just had a four week old baby. That'd be a bit weird. Has a four week old baby. Um, and we're going to try again to get him on next week um, because the rally was run by one by 0. 0.5 seconds. Yeah, that's intense. So I was really looking forward to having him on. That was because Mike Young. Um, but fully understand when you have a kid that these things happen. Absolutely. So, I know better than anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so, yep. So he's on next and looking forward to this one. Thanks very much for joining us tonight, Dean. Very late notice that we rang you up, so very much appreciate it. How are you? I'm good, mate. No problems at all. That's what happens when you get older. See, you're like the uh, you know once upon a time people rather than the upfront people. But uh, going really well, mate. Going really well. <laughs> Look, uh, you and I had the pleasure of meeting over the weekend for the very first time, and um, straight away shoving a camera in your face and microphones and stuff. And yeah, no pleasure to work with you and. Mate, that rally on the weekend, before we go get into you, 0.5 seconds in it. Like, it's it's the bit that I love about our sport, to be honest. I, As you know, you're there covering it. You've got guys out in the field. Now, we don't see each other. You know, at the end of the day, we go two-minute gaps in an event like that, and it's in seated order. We can have people on different tyre combinations, different noting systems, the teams did over 135Ks that we kept talking about, and yet to be half a second, you sometimes don't get you know, an eight-lap race that can be that close. It's, mm. It still astounds me that we can be competing. In, in our sport, we talk tenths of a second, or you know, seconds per K. And, you know, Mike, obviously, we were running him as part of our team, et cetera, and we're talking we're half a second a kilometre off here and bits and pieces. And, yeah, I mean, how fascinating to do an hour and a half's worth of motorsport where the two cars never meet to eyeball each other to know who, where the strengths and weaknesses are and you come across the line and you're half a second. It is amazing. It's, it's awesome. And for, for people who aren't familiar with rallying, I mean, you are saying it's absolutely amazing. Because, you know, I mean, we see Formula One and circuit racing and all that and, you know, it's like tenths of a second and all that sort of stuff. In terms of comparing it to that sort of a scale is that sort of what you're talking about like you'd be saying like half a second is relative to like a a tenth of a second in oh and i think it's probably even smaller than that because i think for me you've got to remember we did probably on the weekend like i said total was 135 k's probably 60 of that 60 kilometers was a different road that's like you and i jumping in cars right now and going from perth city down to frio and back again and trying to then race each other, and don't, but not seeing each other. Every corner was different. The conditions changed. That's the beauty of it. And yet we can still be that close. So I think, you know, unlike a track and, 
you know, something that springs to mind, which is probably the closest to a rally road I can think of, Tumak Rally Road like Bathurst, you know, that's 24 corners, 6.4 Ks, and even then we're fascinated by a tenth of a second gaps. So to sort of do it, and it doesn't happen all the time, um, for sure. Sometimes we can have blowouts and you can win by two minutes or win by uh, 30 seconds, but it, it shows that, you know, the Forest Rally, which was, you know, be probably the biggest state event we do this year uh, in these circumstances with a good quality field and good competitive cars. And that's the other thing we haven't even touched on yet. We had, obviously, you know, Mike and Scott sitting in a, a PRC or a Group A Subaru uh, and then John O'Dowd in a, you know, basically a second-tier WRC car, you know, an R5 Skoda. So even that's different, and yet we're still very, very close. So, I mean, I, I think reminds me back, like I said, I've got the grey hair now, mate, and that's why uh, I'm talking on microphones more than driving. But when we were doing the ARC, uh, the Australian Championship with Super Australia, I know that, you know, at one point we had Mitsubishi, we had Ford in there, we had Toyota, of course, and Subaru was strong even with a couple of different teams at one point. And we would have 10 guys battling it out over probably 20 seconds over a day. And we thought that was fascinating. And, you know, you literally, you know, make a small mistake and you lose the rally. And that's not always the case with different categories and series and state events and stuff. But it was sort of great to have that uh, and added to the excitement of what was, you know, just perfect conditions. That's the other thing for rallying. Very rare to have perfect conditions. It's either really hot and dusty or it's wet and wild and dirty. I mean, I think with the weather we had leading up, it's probably near on as perfect conditions you're going to get. So we had some great spectator numbers out because it was a beautiful day. Collie welcomed us. The Surf Park had a bit of a vibe about it. It was just a really great day. And I think the result just capped off what was already going really well anyway. Yeah. Let's turn to Dean Herridge. You, how did you get started in motorsport? Uh, like a lot of people in motorsport, second generation. So obviously my father, um, you know, won state championship events back in the day and championships and then uh, went and did ARC, uh, two-time national champion, uh, drove for Subaru as it turns out as well, ironically. Um, he started quite late though, to be fair. I remember he started when I was like in year seven. You know, prior to that, he'd done all sorts of things from offshore powerboat racing and motocross and even clay pigeon shooting, which he's gone back and done now that he doesn't race as much. But so really for me, you know, I was really fully aware of this sport that he was getting involved in. Um, loved it, loved being around it. Was never, you can see by my hands, never going to be a mechanic because I wasn't that type of person. But wanted to get involved and I guess was lucky enough that Dad said to me once, I mean, I would have loved to have done carts and I drove probably a couple of mates' carts or Dad pulled a fave and we had a run. I never did any karting. He basically said, look, you just be a kid, do your TE at the time, be doing all your schooling and at some stage we'll make some stuff happen for you. Um, that was also meant when Dad was at his, I guess, prime and doing Australian Championship, we're talking like 91, 92. Um, I'm now in year sort of 10, 11 at high school. So I think it was also probably a good excuse for Dad to go, look, <laughs> son, you just stay over there and, and be a kid and we'll maybe make some stuff happen for you. So literally straight out of school, I went and worked on the CBH grain bins um, and got some cash together, which went straight into building a rally car. Uh, Dad had only just started Maximum Motorsport like at the beginning of 93. He'd been a truck or transport contract up to that point. So lots of things just met in the middle. I, don't, I didn't feel like I was trying hard to be a rally driver, but since I've been told by friends of mine who would say, oh, you so much wanted to make that work. You know, it's, I did sort of what my old man did where, you know, I wasn't drinking a month before a rally and that sort of stuff and sticking to that religiously and training and 
being it, even though I wasn't working at the workshop as such, I was there doing trying what was my hard yards to try and sort of see how I would go. And that's sort of how I started. So I look very fortunate. There's some very small negatives on being Rob Herridge's son. Uh, there's way more positives, of course, but I did find it probably tough going early on if I wasn't really keen to make it happen. If you weren't a Rob Herridge fan, you weren't a Dean Herridge fan, even if they'd never met you. Um, <laughs> But like I said, I'm just very lucky and I was obviously okay at it and had some great opportunities and we just maximised the most out of it and here we are, goodness knows how many years later. So, Just a couple more years later. <laughs> yeah, we're not counting. <laughs> now your um, first season, you won the WA Clubman Championship. How, how yeah, I, one of the other things was I did a couple of autocrosses in two-wheel drive cars I was very fortunate that I guess with dad's experience, we knew that it wasn't all about power and, you know, putting big engines in. I was very lucky. I started rallying in basically a brand new car. Would you believe it was a left-hand drive for Hyundai Lantra? I think for the ones people who know about the others, it was a J1 version. The reason it was left-hand drive is that Hyundai ran, uh, sent two cars from Korea back in the day to do a TV commercial in Australia. I think it was an ad for Korean television. And after they'd finished doing the ad over here in the middle of the desert, the cars were left here and they basically, well, don't send them back, just get rid of them basically. And of course, left-hand drive, brand new cars being used for an ad, had hardly any Ks on them. No use, can't put them on the road here. So a very smart guy here who was the WA state manager at the time said, I know what I can do with them. We'll offer them up as sort of rally cars. And I, I didn't know who that was and I didn't really know this negotiating was going on, but dad basically picked up a left-hand drive, almost brand new road car for next to nothing with the proviso will really could only ever be turned into a rally car. And that's where my money I'm talking about from the grain bins went into the roll cage and building that. It was pretty standard, but built in the right way, lightweight, did everything sort of the best we could. Basically standard engine. I think it had a few, ironically, Mitsubishi Galant parts that were sort of crossed over from the co-branding and started rallying. I mean, I did my first club and event, did okay. I think we got sixth outright, um, you know, first front wheel drive back then because everything was rear wheel drive mostly. The big thing that probably helped me win that championship, and I was very, very lucky, I got an entry into Rally Australia. I think at the time probably made me, I was 17 years and three weeks. And of course, with Rally, you've got to have a, a road license, uh, be off, sorry, off your P plate. So I'd had my license for obviously a little bit. Um, made me one of the youngest people to do a WRC at the time, I think. Uh, maybe Lutbala is the only one sort of better that at one point. Doing that event, and I was down the back somewhere, don't get me wrong, I made a mistake very early on and dropped 30 minutes in the stage. It put me to the back of the pack. And the old man said, uh, I wanted to pull out because, of course, it wasn't showing where I could really be. And Dad and Mum grabbed me at one point and said, there would be people that would give their left arm to be in this event, just basically get in the car and finish off the rally. It's probably the best bit of advice I got because for the next two days, I wasn't looking at times. I was literally just driving doing so many kilometres that a WRC car event gives you that I really almost did a season's worth of driving in two days, finished off and learnt so much more that the following weekend was a Clubman event and I went out and won it. And that sort of set me up to win this Clubman Championship. And I guess I just gained so much experience in a small amount of time. Um, and, yeah, probably didn't realise it at the time on how important that sort of doing the WRC event was going to be. But pretty cool to win yeah. the Clubman Championship. Um, I did... I emceed the awards dinner a couple of years back and uh, that club and sort of perpetual trophy still runs around. 
and I had a couple of my kids there and I think someone brought it around to showcase. See, your dad did drive at one point. There it was, 1994, club and champion or something like that back in the day. So, uh, no, quite good. And I've got great memories of, you know, driving and learning and cutting your teeth back then as well, of course. So um, it's good to hear that you did jump back in the car on that after that uh, mishap because, yeah, like we, we hear all the stories from everyone coming on and uh, we had a young guy Antonio Studi on and he's uh, he was in F4 and uh, S5000s and uh, he was about to get over get lapped and actually pulled into the pits and retired so we didn't have that on his card so yeah, <laughs> just yeah. Like... <laughs> oh and look that, that's I guess the thing that I mean I'm I was making myself bigger than I, I was probably fighting for who knows, bloody 50th at the time. And, of course, I'm going to be stone last in my first WRC. I'm Rob Herridge's son. And, you know, clearly I could drive okay. But to really start that second day, I was 20 minutes behind anybody but had just made, without boring people who don't know about rallying, the late time. You, know, you can fall out of time where you just can't get back in the rally. Um, so it was just fortunate that happened. Mum and Dad pulled my head straight. And, like I said, I think I then just enjoyed driving for what it was, you know, doing all these stages and I do remember on the weekend, of course, I kept referring with you guys to Wellington Dam. That was a 45K stage or 40-something kilometres of Rally Australia back then. I actually still have a slight wrist injury from back then because I actually remember going wide on one of those roads and hitting a stump with the front wheels of my car, snapped the steering straight, and, of course, I had my hand in the wheel and sort of damaged it a little bit. Uh, not Nothing major, of course, but... And then and bent the rear beam axle and limped out and all this sort of stuff and just learned a whole heap and I do think like I said I was just very fortunate that probably what might have taken me a year or two to get up to speed and be one of the fast clubman guys we just and like I said when I went and did that event a week later I didn't think I was doing anything different to what I was doing you know months before but clearly our export our sport is particularly big on experience um, you know we can have young guys and they're always going to be fast and always going to be keen but experience plays a huge part, um, and I don't think you can underestimate that. I mean, that's why we see, you know, the WRC guys, it's not unusual for them to be 30-plus years old fighting at the front. You've got young guys coming through, absolutely, and they'll be fast, but they're fast but fragile. Yeah. And, um, you know, experience always plays a big part. So any – that was the other thing I remember from my dad. He said, you don't learn anything walking out of stages. <laughs> so it's all well and good, but if you only do two stages and crash, well, guess what? You've just missed – you know, on the weekend, we had 135 kilometres. If you have, you know, a problem on stage one or you crash or make a mistake and you've only done 20 kilometres, well, guess what? You just missed out on 110 kilometres of experience to help you, you know, try and achieve whatever it is that you're chasing. So, yeah. Flash forward to 1999 and um, I think you, you headed off to England to compete over in, uh, in the British uh, Rally Championship and I believe you're the first Australian to score points in that championship. In the British championship. The difference between, you know, obviously being in Australia, you know, temperatures and all that sort of stuff, then going over to Britain and dealing with their temperatures. Well, I do know it's very unmotivating to get out and try and help work on the car or do anything because it's just so bloody cold. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd sort of... We were, we were a bit lucky. Once again, because of Rally Australia being here, we built up a few contacts. Um, you know, Dad was doing a bit of logistical work for Ford or M Sport, as it turned out to be, you know, uh, for them here. Uh, and we got to know Derek Ringer quite well, uh, who obviously co-drove and won the World Championship with Colin McRae. Um, you know, Dad did a bit of work with them with Subaru. And then, of course, he 
gone on and done a bit of team management stuff. He then went on to co-drive for Martin Rowe in the UK Championship with, uh, with Renault. And obviously at that stage, I'm in a front-wheel drive, almost F2 car. Uh, ironically, he had done a stint with Kia, believe it or not, in 96. And then in 97 and 98, we went on and did the Australian Championship in a front-wheel drive Kia. We were cutting our teeth and doing a pretty good job in the series amongst some, some sort of up-and-comers and some people who got on to win championships like Simon Evans and stuff. I guess the next phase for that was try and become a professional driver. Um, so an opportunity came up where Derek said, look, you've just got to get to the UK and compete over there. We had an opportunity to test with Renault. I did a kart test with them, et cetera. And um, yeah, as it turned out from that point, we decided that one of the things was, do we lease a car or do we, um, you know, do we take our own car over? And as it turned out, would you believe uh, us taking our Hyundai that we'd run for a couple of seasons, we put that on in a container and sent it to the UK um, did Rally of Wales and the Pirelli International. To be honest, I went boy with the difficulties of the run we had. But, yeah, as it turned out, managed to score uh, some points in the British Championship and one of the first Australians to do that, which was pretty cool. But the whole idea was to be in their backyard to establish and get your name in there. Um, and like I said, that led to a, a cart test with Renault. We then got a green light to go and test the rally car in November, uh, come back to the UK, and as fate would have it, uh, I don't know, it might have been August or something like that. Uh, Renault UK and Renault pulled out of all motorsport, including touring cars and rallying, and therefore there was no rally program and we then have to back and go down a different path. So um, it did allow me to, you know, I'd done Indonesia at that stage and New Zealand in other cars and had a bit of experience, but I guess to have that international experience and live away from home a little bit and have a taste of that uh, was, was always going to be, you know, hold me in good stead for whatever we were going to do in the future. So. So with the, um, you know, the, the part thing, I mean, in circuit racing is generally when anyone in circuit racing wants to try and make it to the big time, you know, they essentially have to go overseas, you know, to compete in Europe and that. Do you think that's something that rally currently does too? Or is, is there enough, you know, they can make it onto the big stage in rallying without needing to a, I think there's a potential in rallying that pure talent can show. You know, when you're younger and like I said, I'm in this front wheel drive Lantra doing the West Australian Championship and I could beat four wheel drive turbo cars, you know, with some gentleman drivers in it. Um, you know, currently we've got Max McRae cutting his teeth in a front wheel drive car and clearly that's been a decision that the McRae family's made to go, we're not just going to go and throw you in an outright car. We're going to let you learn the craft, you know, make some mistakes, you know, earn your stripes almost. Um, you know, he's in a left-hand drive car because you're going to go to Europe. You've got to be in left-hand drive. You can't just sort of you know, use that as an excuse for a period of time. Um, so I think, yes, we sort of got to do the same thing. You've eventually got to go over there and do it. And I think, you know, that's a good example of someone like even Atkinson was probably at the right age. They probably had to put a bit of money towards it. He'd done a good job here in Australia um, and went across and, you know, did an absolutely amazing job to make his Subaru World Rally Team thing work. Um, what is difficult is like all motorsport is that you've probably got to try and find some funding or have contacts or if you do get an opportunity, maximise what that is because timing's a bit of everything. Um, and like I said, I think that's a prime example. You know, we just happen to have the fact that, you know, Alistair and, uh, lives here, uh, but no doubt they would be doing a similar thing if they still lived in the UK. And Max would be sort of trying to work his way through. The difficult part is we probably don't have a direct, easy way for Australians to find a, a way to the World Championship. We've got, you know, a pretty solid Australian championship. It can come with support from manufacturers. You can almost 
to get to the highest level, get paid to even drive some of those cars sometimes. And then we've got Asia Pacific as a stepping stone and, and these sorts of events. It's hard because it's not a, a major sport. It's hard enough to get into Formula One and it gets so much television and publicity and even then it's hard to get support. For us, you know, WRC is not the highest rating program or motorsport around. And so to get funding from Australian companies to give Aussies a chance to get over there is hard, to give them value. Um, and yet other countries like the, the uh, particularly Finland, do it in a fantastic way because they're, you know, that's a major sport for them over there. They're investing the money in their juniors almost like a business. You know, at the end of the day, like Val, I think it's only Gronholm, but if you mention Mackin and uh, those sorts of guys, Rove and Perra from back in the day, they've all been backed by a manager who invests in their motorsport, like a business transaction, and when you start making money, you repay that, and it becomes a business. You know, we just don't have the ability to do that very easy, I guess, uh, over here. So it's always, I'm not saying it's not possible. You know, you see the likes of, uh, you know, Mark Webber make it through the hard way, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, without maybe a serious amount of funding. So it can be done. Atkinson did a great job. Um, we do have Aussies who can compete, you know, fast and at the front end. In my day, it was Group N. Nowadays, it's a bit more AP4 and R5. Uh, you know, like the likes of Harry Bates would be no doubt looking at it. And they're making deliberate calls with that Yaris to go, well, it's left-hand drive. It's an AP4 type car, but it'd be very similar to an R5 if they could give him a leg up and get him a chance to go and do, let's say, the junior championship or have a crack at uh, WRC 2 or 3 or something, that's where he could show his worth. I do think one great thing about the Australian championship is we're almost a mini WRC in a way. And what I mean by that is the roads that we were competing on here in Perth on the weekend is this ball-bearing roads that you know, even the Europeans talk about being very rare. You go to South Australia, very different roads to Melbourne, which is very different to Queensland. So... You do have to adapt to different states and be quite, even though we're all mostly gravel, but we have some great tarmac, you know, targa events. Um, you know, you can send an Australian over and it'd be quite adaptable to sandy conditions, loose gravel, tarmac, and that sort of stuff. So, you know, that is one good thing about our sport. And like I said, you can go from event to event and, um, you know, they, are, they can be quite different. So that's, uh, yeah, it is hard work, but, um, you know, never say never. Now, outside of rallying, you've also done tarmac events. Uh, Bathurst 12 Hour is is on the list. Yep. Do you find you – how do you make that transition from, you know, being able to sort of slide the car a bit more and, <laughs> you know, on the, the off-road services to then having to go, you know, grip racing and, you know – I think – uh, sort of I think my – yeah, I think my style suited tarmac, would you believe? I'd never really done any tarmac work or targa events. And here I am driving for Subaru. When Subaru pulled out of Australian rallying, to my surprise, Nick Senior said, look, we're thinking about heading out a tarmac program to do the likes of Targa Tasmania, Mountain Buller Sprint was gaining momentum and that sort of stuff. Um, we think you'd be quite good at it and that your style could suit. I'm like, what? Are you, are you kidding me? Where did you get that from? So we, of course, got the opportunity to do those events with Subaru and quickly adapted to be quite competitive in Targa and, and alike. Um, I've been very lucky that yeah, the 12-hour the we did with Subaru where we got second, and it was quite well known that you know, there were three rally drivers together and there was a car full of uh, race drivers, including you know, Crompton, Denyer, and Alizage. And it was driving our style of car. It was essentially a production-based Subaru which is very similar to our rally car. So that took no real adapting. And like I said, for me, probably my style suited it slightly. Um, ironically, you know, the year that Cody, myself and uh, Chris Atkinson did it together, 
for once, I had the upper hand on my teammate, Cody Crocker, who had won three ARCs, a very hard guy to beat you know, and hard to be a teammate of. I do remember him coming into the pits at Bathurst at one point and all of a sudden asking, Dean, what are you doing here? Where are you breaking there? Because my splits or my, my lap times were better than his potentially on tarmac. And maybe now we're older and still good mates, he would probably say, oh, I think Dean probably adapted to tarmac better than me because his style on gravel and still would be now was super aggressive. Under brakes, his co-driver would sit in with me with testing and go, wow, you two are so different. It's amazing. Once again, the different style we get, the stage times can be close. Cody was real aggressive under brakes where you're almost in the belts, under the car, grab it by the scruff of the neck, turn it in and then belt it. And people like Possum Bourne and Simon Evans come to mind like that. Mine was a little less aggressive under brakes, but therefore lost a little less mid-corner speed, but was quite precise. So I feel like Rally New Zealand, some of the roads in uh, you know, Melbourne suited me more where you could be accurate and pinpointing, and that's sort of what Tarmac was. So I feel like you know, that was sort of what we knew Ed Odinsky to be like in a Group N car and a little bit like what Neil Bakes was like. So I feel like my adaption to Tarmac was a little different. Um, awesome, fun to do it, because like... Any motorsport fan in, in Australia, I grew up watching Bathurst, you know, putting my VHS tapes in to try and take the whole sort of seven hours of it and wanted to be like, you know, whether it be Alan Moffat or Dick Johnson or Peter Brock. Um, so even though we were doing the 12-hour version and we were in production cars, um, it was still awesome to be doing that for the first time uh, and, you know, sharing a car with someone and being on that road. You know, I remember people saying, oh, what do you, what do you think? You know, Cody and I had very limited and so did Chris, you know, uh, you know track or, um, you know, circuit experience. Our take on it was we weren't daunted by the track. You've got to pay it respect, absolutely. But to us, it was almost like a rally road that connected and you got to do laps on. Because when we've gone and competed in places like China or in Australia, you know, you can be on the side of a mountain sometimes and literally goodness knows what the drops are like and the road's loose and it can be wet one minute. So I don't think we were daunted by the dipper and the, and the undulations. It was an awesome track. I can see why people love it. But to us, it was a rally road that connected. So we paid it a lot of respect, but I don't think we were daunted, which helped. And we're in the style of car that, like I said, helped. Um, because on the flip side, in 2005, I got a chance to test a DJR car, would you believe, at Queensland Raceway. God, what a hard thing to get your head around. <laughs> I just that when I thought I was going fast, I was going slow. When I thought I was going slow, I was going fast. And that was just a whole different art form. You know, that was an AU development car back in the day. I literally finished Rally Queensland, got an opportunity to go and test one of the cars. It was a great experience, but just a completely different discipline. And like I said, I left scratching my head a little bit on how to make that go fast. And you know, that's when you are talking those tenths of a second per lap. Um, and going, wow, you know, imagine being in now with 24 other guys in basically the same cars as you trying to work your way to the front or stay in front or whatever it might be is a totally different discipline to what we were doing in rallying. And, you know, we had the likes of Jason Bright sit in our car to do our media day in Melbourne. And they would turn to us and go, man, you get to do the stuff we don't get to do, which is, you know, <laughs> literally throw it sideways and then pin the throttle where they had to be patient. And, you know, clearly a V8 supercar driver jumping in a group in or production-based rally car is not going to be super impressed by the power, particularly when we want a restrictor in the turbo. But the thing they always would talk about would be the braking. They said, I cannot believe how late you guys are on the brakes and how good these cars are 
to turn and the tyre technology because that's what freaks them out the most. You know, come off the corner and hold them a slide. Yeah, it's pretty good. And, but then you throw trees in and you throw the undulations and the dips and the jumps and then they are, I can tell you now, pressing their own brake pedal from the passenger seat because that's the bit where they're going, man, we're on gravel. We're supposed, the corner's coming, I can see it. And, um, yeah, that would be the bit that was hard for them to get their head around and go, I just can't believe how late you brake on gravel. And, you know, that's where something like a Subaru, we were very lucky, you know, a boxer engine with symmetrical all-wheel drive to be able to then use that diff technology to pull out and fire off the corners in a, in a talky sort of turbocharged car is where they go, man, this is a whole different discipline. And, and hence why it's probably therefore very difficult for a V8 driver to jump in a Subaru of some note and try and wrap it around the forest somewhere. So, <laughs> so speaking of doing well in tarmac events, uh, I believe you came first in the Australian Tarmac Championship in 2011. Was that a bit of a surprise? Um, yes and no. I think because we'd had that taste of Targa and we'd been competitive in the Subaru car. Now, Subaru did that as a factory outfit for a year and then pulled the pin. And then I guess we went back a few years later and had some support. And like I said, I went boy with the details. But the thing about it was the year that I went to Target Taz for the first time, it's about, it's an amazing event. It's 500 competitive Ks. And of course you can pace note it. That was one of our strengths is that we wrote good pace notes and we could commit to the pace notes, which I think is a art form in itself. So to maximize our opportunity, when I drove for Subaru in our first Target Taz, we did nine days of recce and even then only got two passes and they were my notes with my co-driver running around all over the island to get our notes down pat for the event over two stints. We would drive that event on the notes, which I don't think a lot of the target competitors or therefore even the guys in the supercars can do fully. One, they don't have the experience. They definitely get there and they're probably pretty good nowadays. But I think back then, we're talking 2011, 2008, that sort of era, um, yeah, our car was underpowered. We were a little heavy potentially, but we were living off every note and that was our strength at the time. You know, Jim Richard was the king of Targa at the time, got an amazing Porsche. He's an amazing driver. He's got his old friend Barry Oliver in there. Were they the experts at pace noting and, and committing to the pace notes? No, and he would be the first to tell us that. Um, so, yes, they could go very, very quick, very experienced, hard to beat, but, you know, they would then also talk to us and go, God knows how you can you know, drive that car on the limit that much. You know, if our note said, you know, left five over the crest, we would commit to that where these guys were clearly lifting for a little longer, waiting to see, assess everything and go. Um, but amazing to, to look. And I remember seeing it like Targa uh, rest point one year when we're fighting for the lead. You've got GDR, GDR, Porsche, Lamborghini, whatever else, and then a <laughs> Subaru. And, and, and John White at one point, he nicknamed us the hairdresser's car. Because, I mean, our car stood about, you know, two foot taller than anyone else's because they're all these sleek, you know, um, you know, supercars. And I think we're just a pesky pain in the backside. You know, we've got this probably on-road $60,000 car, which is like all of them built to be a race car, and yet going, holy shit, was our bloody God knows V12 <laughs> Gallardo thing. You know, we're fighting with a Subaru. So, yeah, we used to get sledged a bit to go, how's bloody hairdresser's car still giving us a bit of a harassment. So, look, I never won the event outright. Um, we finished second and third, but obviously that championship was made up of things like, I think, uh, High Country, Rest Point and um, Target Taz. So, you know, clearly we got it all together to, to win the championship, which is what our aim was. Um, super cool. Still love the event. We'd love to go back to something like that. 
I don't know whether I'd live on the edge as much as we did sort of back in the day. And, you know, clearly I'd probably still go on a Subaru. And if it rained in a Subaru, don't worry, we could go strong because, of course, you know, you can grab a Subaru by the scruff of the neck. And as you said, you know, having the car move and slide around is not a big deal for us. So even on tarmac, not that it's always the fastest way, but it didn't worry you if that happened. Yeah. Where I've got people who even drive a Subaru and have got a lot of tarmac experience, but they're not used to the car moving. And they go and do something like a season of gravel. And that's the biggest thing they find difficult is learning how and why the car moves around. So for us, I guess that's one advantage of starting off and doing gravel and doing a lot of drive days in Subarus and track laps and all that sort of stuff and, and doing demos on skid pans and things is you learn what the car can do and how it can, can be controlled. And so that never worried us. And when we first made the transition, people say, what's the difference between gravel rallying and tarmac rallying? And I would say... I reckon that tarmac rallying is probably 30% faster because although you've still got some of the best roads in the country and they're quite narrow, there's still two lanes wide. So when you take now the racing line, it still makes them very fast. Yeah. And when we're in gravel rallying, believe it or not, if you come off and you're doing 180 k's an hour for straight and you're braking for a 90 degree corner, you sort of know how you're going as soon as you hit the brakes because the car starts moving under brakes. And you can always tell, oh, I'm struggling. On tarmac, you brake hard and firm, but you actually don't get that feedback until you almost start the turning. So if we're doing 180 k's on gravel and 180 k's on tarmac, on gravel, I can tell you a couple of seconds in advance of the corner that I am or aren't in trouble with this braking area. Well, with tarmac, you think you've got it, you think you've got it, and then you turn and you go, oh, I haven't got it. I've got too much speed on. Or, and when it snaps on you in tarmac, it goes so quickly. There's no feedback where when the car's already under brakes and you're moving around and doing that sort of famous Scandinavian flick, it's actually feedback for the driver to make a call. So I think that's the other reason why you'll see just a going good, going good, going good, one split moment. And if you don't catch the slide on tarmac and you haven't gathered it all up, you're in the scenery and, oh, wow, how did that happen? You know, I've been going all great all day, never made a mistake. And the one time I did, I didn't catch it. So that's that's the hard bit when the car moves around or you do push the limits on tarmac, I think. Well, I'm going to hand you over to Brent and he's going to get into the more technical questions. Oh, geez, I might not be any good at these ones, Brent, so go easy, I think. So. <laughs> no, no, it'll be easy. I'm not, I'm not really from a, uh, you know, like a, a proclaimed to, to Molly last week. I'm not from a rally background, um, more of a circuit guy, but grew up in New Zealand um, and... Uh, a lot of a lot of very good friends over there into rally. Um, I didn't do the traditional route into motorsport. I didn't do go karting, um, but as soon as I could, I got into motor carners and hill climbs and and that sort of stuff. And that's really big in the town I grew up in over there. And um, first sort of officially experience was uh, Raglan Rally New Zealand. Yeah. Um, so and yeah, that was that was pretty wicked. That was that were good days. Did you get to drive any of the New Zealand rally ones? Right, you've got some of the best roads over there. Uh, obviously, when I drove for the factory team with Subaru, it was run by Possible Motorsport. So, you know, the home base was Pukekohe. Yep. Would you believe our testing was done in the Maumarua Forest? Yep. Um, particularly once Possum had passed away, and I guess Cody and I were the main two drivers, we would find ourselves doing the pre-season testing. We'd fly to New Zealand for that. Um, we were lucky enough. I got my first production, you know, WRC victory in 2004 in Rally New Zealand. Uh, I just did a, a bit of a podcast interview with Peter Whitten from Rally Sport News talking about how amazing the group in field was back then. Um, awesome to do Rally New Zealand. And like I said, still probably one of my favourite events. I think that I've said to people, 
you want to go and just have fun and maybe not look at results, which is rare for a motorsport person to do that, just amazing camber of roads. And you do actually have a really great rally heritage there because you've run WRC events for so long um, and you know, have a strong domestic championship and stuff like that. The only thing that we would have to do for the week that we'd go over there would be we'd have to change our name to Subaru Rally Team Australia <laughs> rather than Subaru. So. Oh, man, you've got no, no idea. Like, I've been in Australia <laughs> uh, 15, 16 years now. And, uh, and I still pronounce it the right way. Everyone else is, you guys are all wrong. Um, <laughs> you know, New Zealand is the only country in the world that was allowed to call it Subaru. They didn't try yeah. to have an advertising campaign to change it. Everywhere else calls it Subaru. But yet we would get off and from the customs, because of course you got Subaru on your shirt. Oh, you're from Subaru Rally Team Australia. And, and to be honest, it was just easier. I think we just started calling Subaru by the end of the time, particularly if we're talking to New Zealanders, and then you get back over and you just sort of convert back to being Subaru. So. <laughs> oh, man, anyone, anyone listening to this that knows me knows that you've, you've just made my uh, day, probably made my year, because um, you're right, it is Subaru, um, <laughs> and it's the right way to pronounce it. Well, you're allowed to call it that if you're a Kiwi. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Um, we just got to get, um, get Craig calling it that, Shane, and it'll be good. Um, wicked. So... Um, you're obviously, uh, you have a massive, um, you know, legacy of driving, both your father's and, and yours. Um, you, you, you're pretty damn fast in a car, on tarmac and on, on dirt. Um, with the, you know, you're talking about um, one of the strengths that you had going across was feeling how the car moves underneath you um, and having that, being able to adapt quickly from what you, you understood or could interpret from what it was doing on gravel. To, to circuit how like, is that just from experience or how would you teach someone new to try and pick that up quickly or is there yeah is it just a sixth sense or a natural thing i, you know, I think i think it's a bit of everything um experience i think is massive but i think it's a bit like monkey see monkey do if i'd done 10 years worth of tarmac or you know here in perth run around wandering raceway and you're used to you know wings and slicks and stuff like that I think it is hard to adapt to gravel because it's a different discipline. I actually think it's easier to transition the other way. So guess what? I grew up running around the back paddock, you know, in Northam, in a two-wheel drive car, learning to slide around. My dad was into rallying. I you know, told you the story of doing gravel rallying and doing WRCs and doing a lot of Ks, and that just becomes part of the progression. Now, there'd be people that have got as much experience as me who just still probably don't have a feel for it. They love it, and it's great fun, and they don't profess to try and make a profession out of it. When I was younger, I remember going to a drive program or I was asked to go and do driver training somewhere. It might have been for a WX club or something like that. And I'm still fairly young. I don't see myself as being super experienced thinking, what am I going to show anybody? I don't think I do anything fabulously exciting. But then you would sit with someone and go, holy smokes, this guy's got absolutely no idea. You know, I just remember one time, not too many of them, but it was an auto WX because this guy had an injury. He had an auto and the, he was on the gas and off the gas in all the wrong spots. And we sort of term it sometimes when, and I don't do a lot of driver training, so you've probably got better people to ask than me, but you've got to work with the car. And I term it that you talk to the car. You're waiting for feedback and interpreting things that are just, could take a minute to explain one corner that happens just instantly. You know, in rallying, when we talk about the pace notes that are going on and we obviously grade corners in certain, it's almost like a language. It's up to every driver to do that. That's where your mind is on setting up to go for that corner. 
but then the driving is happening in the presence. And for me, that's where that sort of saying driving by the seat of your pants comes from. Because if I'm aiming down there and I know the road's got a left five or a small kick to the left and I can hit it pretty much flat, if I hit a bump that I'm not expecting, it's instant reaction and feel that cracks that. And then your brain goes, well, hang on, I've still got to make this left five. So what's the right call? Do I go down a gear? Can I get brake on? When do I transition from braking to accelerating at the right time? Because, you know, when I went to China, I remember there we were repeating a stage. It was a tarmac rally. They love they love rallying over there, but some of the teams are not that great. I remember repeating a run, and you should be concentrating your own rally, but there were some skid marks approaching a fast downhill section into almost a 90 left. And there were two solid black marks from about 100 metres out and they were black until it went off the side of the road, you know, off the mountain almost. And even to myself, I'm going, mate, you didn't even give yourself a chance because at some point you've got to get off the brake to get the car to turn in and work for you. But clearly this guy's gone, brake, scary, 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 I'm not going to stop. And at some point his only chance was going to be to get off the brake, uh, get off the brake to make the corner. So there is this skill that I think is hard to do really well of talking to and working with and maximising the car. And I think anyone that's in V8s or motor carners or state rally championship or world rally championship have to have that. And I, I don't know if you can teach some of it. I think you probably can. But I think there has to be an air of natural ability there as well that just sort of becomes... And it could be picked up from experience or starting young. Um, I've never had a driving lesson from a dad. Um, he's been a motivator and using his experience for sure. But I reckon, and this is all seriousness, he's probably sat in the passenger seat with me at pace with the helmet on four times. And I'm talking, and they were in the early parts. You know, and one particular time I had a crash in 99 in Coffs Harbour. We're trying to win the Privateers Championship. We did a bit of a pre-test to try and get me up and running again, you know, because you can't, it's pretty hard to practice rallying. And my co-drivers, we're up and down this hill, and my co-drivers at the time, Glenn McNeil, very experienced, going, Probably to my dad, he's struggling. He's just nowhere near where he needs to be just in regards to letting the car flow and he's still, still the accident's probably still affecting him. The old man jumped in the car, sat in there, went down the hill, didn't say anything, went up the hill. And the only things he said to me was, I reckon I could drive faster than that, <laughs> which was probably the one motivator <laughs> for me to get my act together. Um, because he felt like there's advice to be given from the experience side, which absolutely is worth its weight in gold. But he wasn't trying to change my style to suit his style to suit it. Because like I said to you, mm. Cody Crocker and I could do an exact same stage time in very different ways. And he has amazing car control, and, but he does it in a different way to me. So if someone tried to teach me to drive like Cody, I probably couldn't drive as fast. So I'm probably yeah. just fortunate that, you know, my style could suit and I could still be competitive. And now that I'm older, I'm not trying to hide any secrets or you can, you know, you, you, you know your lot in life. Um, I feel on rough roads and when you had to be really committed and fast, the likes of a Cody, a Possum and a Simon would be more competitive. But I then also on the flip side, remember we would do a stage in uh, Melbourne called Akron Way. Beautiful bit of road, reminded me of New Zealand, where the car just danced on this really smooth road. It was beautifully cambered. There was white posts and a drop-off and all that sort of stuff. And I remember Simon Evans saying to me once, man, I can never beat you on that stage. You know, it was very rare that you would have Simon say that because he was always competitive in all things and he would win a lot of stages. The likes of Scott Petter would do the same. So I think for me, in that environment, my style suited to be hard to beat. Now, that might have only been 5% of the time we had rows like that in Australia and maybe I would have been better to try and do the New Zealand Championship. But that's sort of where I guess some of that comes in from my mind. So, Ah, cool. 
Um, so sort of building on that sort of thing, and this is something I like to ask some more of the, the, the pro circuit guys, and it relates the same. And, and you touched on it before when you're speaking to Shane. Um, you talked about some of the gentleman drivers. You know, you, um, the sport needs a lot more of them. You know, people have got to a point in life where they can afford to to splash out and, and get the, the sort of cars we all dream about, but might not have come the, the traditional way in or just don't have that experience like you're saying. Um, how how do you try to interpret what they're feeling or, you know, like with circuit, you, you're normally working with a workshop or a crew or a decent mechanic and you come and you say, oh, it's doing this or it's not doing that. And sometimes it's just a complete blank look at each other because they just no idea what you're trying to say. Yeah. You know, and, and set up just as important, if not more important in rally because it's, yeah. I think the thing I've got a direct comparison there, we've got a guy here called Graham Idles who was very good and, and so, you know, he supported a program with one of his companies when I went and did Targa. And ultimately, we built two cars. One was for him and one was for myself. And I remember at one point, one of our lead guys at the time, uh, partners in the business, said to Graham, you know, you don't have to build the same car as Dean because, you know, you don't have anywhere near the experience. You know, he was basically a rookie, had done his first Targa in the 130 category in his road car, and now he's going to build a fairly serious car, and probably more than he needed. To his, to his um, I guess, fair play to him at the time, he said, I know that, but I know if I've got the same, the only thing I have to work on is me. There's no excuses on having different machinery and stuff, and he was, had the ability to fund that, I guess, at the time, and to this day, he still owns that car. I've probably done more work with Graham over 10 years than I have with anyone else because, like I said, I'm not into driver training. I don't do it very often. And he would run off my pace notes and he'd sit with me and stuff like that. And he's one of the examples I give to try and now gravel rallying because I think it will help his tarmac rallying. And he was pretty good on uh, tarmac, to be fair. But one of the parts of that was trying to, like I said, train him up to have the feeling of it. And it goes back to, again, that he's got some car control. He can drive a slide. But when we went to gravel, guess what the hardest thing for him to get his head around was the braking. Even now, I'm constantly at him to say, brake and brake hard, brake firm, make a decision on it. Because all of us can sort of get a bit of a slide on and power our way through. And when you're driving 100% throttle and changing gears, that's as fast as the car goes. The transition then is from, okay, the decision-making I have to do from here to that corner what do I do? Where do I place the car? What's my co-driver saying? All that sort of stuff is the hardest bit because, you know, like I said, we can take our two cars to Wanneroo and they're, they're rally cars and we probably do similar lap times because he could probably master the seven corners in a production car. I might have a bit over in just through experience, but we would be much closer. Give us 2.2 kilometres of a stage and that maybe one second gap over Wanneroo becomes three or four seconds in the, on the gravel because of that decision-making and getting used to braking and stuff like that. So the hardest thing for him, what he tells us constantly is, you know, is one, the, the rate that things happen at high speed and making decisions that you're confident with and then, you know, braking too early. And at the moment on gravel, he brakes probably at the right spot, but not strong enough. So he's not braking hard enough. He's probably got the braking points not too bad, but I'm saying, mate, you've got to get on the brake to move the car to pivot and do X, Y, and Z. So, um, you know, I, I still think, like I said, he's, he has an awesome time, loves it, doesn't profess to be professional. He's not trying to make a professional of it. I don't think he even expects he's going to win anything, but absolutely loves it. And I think, uh, like I said, well, I've done a lot of stuff with him at you know, Wanneroo and alike. And the other thing that he's probably said to me once before is we would roll into a drive day at, at Wanneroo with maybe his sponsor or his guests, 
and he we give him the car, we get the pressure set, we send him out for a couple of laps, and he come in and he dialed himself in. I joked to him because he might have a spin on cold tyres, for instance. And then he said, the frustrating part was we flicked you the keys, Dean, and he might sit with me just for experience. And he'd say, you're bloody kidding me. He said, from the first corner of the first lap, you are on it. And in rallying and motorsport, you've got to do that. There's no time for warm-up. You can't ease your way in. And I think that's one of the things that rallying does as well is, you know, even on the weekend, let's go back to the forest rally on the weekend, five, four, three, two, one, go. Every kilometre we cover is now being counted for time. You've got to maximise that and be on it straight away. If you take time to warm up, you're ultimately going to struggle to win or beat people who can do that. So I think that's the other thing that he's trying to learn as well is to go, how do I do what Dean does and hop in that car and just from the first turn at Wanneroo know and use all that experience of that car and, and information to, to make it work and be on it straight away. Because there's no point going at 90%, cruising up through the S's and over down the coal and cruising around and going, right, now I'm into it because it doesn't train you up well for when you're, you know, whether you're doing Targa West or whether you're doing Forest Rally on the weekend. So I think there's two parts. It's that, that braking's the hardest bit for anyone to do. And I'm sure that was probably a key part for me when I'm talking about that V8 drive I had. They got heaps of data. And at one point it was the braking. They said, oh, you're shifting through every gear. You know that Glenn Seaton goes from sixth to second. Or, you know, Stephen Johnson goes from sixth to fourth to second. I tried that. Bloody hell, I couldn't get my head around it because to me I needed, you know, I'm coming from gravel where you go down the box or whatever else and, you know, that would help my braking and I'm not the last of the breakers. They're basically saying fire down here, jump on it as hard as you can, as late as you can, and then when the timing's right, pluck second. <laughs> that was just totally different for me from gravel rallying. So I'm sure the same way they're saying, Dan, you're not bad and, yeah, you can carry a slide and everything else, but you're not, you know, you, you need to work a little harder on the brakes. You're probably braking a little early not strong enough, and, yeah, you're wasting time going down the box the whole way. So that would be something for me to work on in reverse. Um, I know the other thing they said to me, I was sharing a car with James Moffat, and one thing they said was, on turn two, James is carrying a little bit more understeer than you, and therefore he's got a little bit more speed on the exit. So I try in this bloody AU Falcon to run a bit more understeer, and the thing's jumping and cowering on like a pork chop. I said, can you give me something that slides in the back a bit more like a rally car? So it's just a different discipline, and obviously you know, something you've got to get your head around. So. No, and that, and that's good. And like you said, the um, some circuit cars, not all of them, but there's some that, uh, like my, uh, I've got a Skyline Sports sedan, and that that uh, um, that definitely, when you come in and you've scared yourself half to death, and you think it's a flyer, and you look at your time, you're like that was terrible, and you come in feeling all like, oh, that was kind of cool, just drove around in circles, and um, you look at your time, you're like that was absolutely horrendously fast. Like what's, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think I've got a pretty good feel for rallying and probably even Targa events, but I do really remember, and it's probably happened to me on the odd occasion in a cart, I guess when you got, and even, a, uh, not so much at Bathurst, because I guess we're in Subarus, but when you've got the ability to check times and then repeat the same thing again, um, yeah, and that's a different discipline in itself, is to know how to take that data, how to change things or speak to your crew in between time. And like I said, on that VA, I just remember going, man, I'll turn in here a bit later, go through, and I think, oh, I've done it all. Shoom, cross the line. You see the, the, the time flash up on the display, and I go, are you kidding me? That was bloody 0.4 slow, and then all of a sudden I'd be a bit ragged here and thinking, oh, that's not going to be any good, and then it was the fastest lap I did. So it's just, like I said, then it would be about managing, right, where was that coming from and why did and why was that faster and stuff, and I'm sure you know, the cut and thrust of a really competitive cart series or one make series or open wheelers is where some of that information on car setup 
and using data to know when and how, particularly if you've got a teammate, would be worth its weight in gold. Rallying's a little different, because like I said, we're out in the blue yonder, it's pretty hard to overlay data. You can sort of do it when you've got a good teammate and you're in similar cars, but you know, the likelihood on the weekend is that, like I said, we had a Skoda versus a Subaru versus a Mitsu Evo, you know, some running Pirelli, some running whatever they might run, and then all of a sudden you mix that in together with different pace note styles, different co-drivers. It's, it's something you've just got to learn to run and be the best you can be out there. No, I 100% get it. Um, yeah, and it's like you said, the, the cool thing about rally is uh, the, the mix of cars. Is that those Skodas are, are very cool cars to look at. Um, Evos, man, everyone loves Evos. They're cool. Um, if only they'd made them with a north-south engine like a Subaru, a proper engine, <laughs> in the right way in the car, it would have been... Some people are throwing their stuff at the computer now. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, I've got a lot of very good friends. With it. I, I've never been in an Evo. It hasn't impressed the crap out of me. It's just every time you open the engine bay, it's like, oh, I'm looking at another Hyundai. Um, <laughs> so you, t- you touched on it, pace notes and, and co-drivers, um, critical to, to what you do. Um, Molly had a pretty good way of explaining that, you know, when you have a good co-driver and you just click and it's like they're in your head and they, you know, when they repeat a call, they do it before you even know that you've, you know, they, they just pick up on where you're at. And, and you said one of your guys' strengths was uh, taking really good pace notes. Is there, a, is there a formula for doing that? Have you got like a, a trick book that you've developed over time? Is there, yeah, something there, some tips not, and tricks there? Not really. The, the difficult, pace notes is like a language. And, and I guess what Molly, what Molly says is exactly right. It's like having a great PA. I'm sure if there's anyone there who's done, uh, a, has a management type role and uses staff or has a PA, for instance, when you get used to each other, uh, you, they know what you're thinking. They can make the calls first. You know you don't have to explain stuff too much, et cetera. And so part of that relationship is that. You know, they're, they're the, the timekeeper. They're the, they're the mum of the car. They're the management of the car to, to control the driver. And then they've got this really weird job that they've got to call these notes. And <clears throat> if they make a mistake, you're going to crash. And if they call them right, you're going to go and try and buddy, you know, uh, be with an inch of your life to try and make it all work. And their timing is critical. I, I couldn't do it. That's why I probably don't do a lot of driver training. I wouldn't sit next to myself, to be fair. I just feel super uncomfortable. <laughs> Cody and I shared a car once on a Canberra drive day. It was his car rolled in. And they said, oh, the road's ready. Uh, you're going to take rides later on today. Uh, go and have a run. I sat in with him. And he was probably going at 60%. And I'm going, well, no, cut. the road goes right. The road, oh, jeez. And I've got under control. He puts me in the driver's seat. And then he's telling me, Break the current gap. We go, this is disastrous. Let's not do it as drivers. It's totally foreign feeling. But the pace notes themselves, I was a bit lucky. Like I said, I started, you know, let's say Rally Oz, 60% of the course was the same. So guess what? I used my dad's notes that he built up over time. And then for the 40% that I didn't have, I had to write them. Man, you could tell the difference between an experienced set of notes and mine. But eventually, through experience, you evolve your own notes. And to the point that now my notes were probably very similar in the basics but different in the way that they're done you know mine are probably a little complicated to some it's really got to suit what you've got to do um some people uh have a a dial system i think even hayden Patton, you would have seen runs it where he tries to run a number system where you turn the wheel on recce and he'll sort of that will give you a bit of a, a a deal i don't do that to me the the angle of the corner is the angle of the corner, no matter what goes on whether it's tarmac or gravel and then you've got distances in between they can be long and short I don't know, it's hard to get a flow because in rallying, like on the weekend, Forest Rally or WRC, you get two passes of the road at maximum in a WRC. It's 80 k's an hour. On the weekend for the Forest Rally, it's 60 k's an hour. So at some point, so you're doing 60 k's an hour to make your pace notes, and yet in the rally, at some point, you're doing 160. 
that's where the experience comes in to know that yump or that little crest we're going over and I, I think we're going to get air there. I'm going to have to caution that one. That's where experience comes in. Um, it's one of the hardest and least enjoyable parts of rallying because it's so important. You know, on this event, on the Forest Rally, they did the recce on the Saturday. They're two passes. When Mike and Scott were in there, I said to them, guys, go and have a great day. A rally starts now. If you don't get that right, you can't expect to run with the front guys because if you can't commit to your notes, if you don't trust the co-driver, if your co-driver's timing is off, you can't drive as fast as some people who have that relationship. So um, some of it's built up over time. They're your own notes. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's only as much as the practice you put in and how much detail you want. And then, because if, let's say, uh, Tony Fever, she co-drives for John O'Dowd. She's got a lot of experience. She's been with him for a couple of years. She's helped him adapt his pace notes to the level because she was slightly more experienced and thought he'd be better with these set of pace notes. If she come to co-drive for me tomorrow, she would have to adapt to my notes. So the co-drivers, the good ones who go between a few people or they might spend a couple of years here and then go somewhere else, they actually adapt to the, the driver's notes. So for me, without boring you on it, my notes are one to six with pluses and minuses in between. John O'Dowd is now using one to 10. So they're very different from that point of view. Some people put the number in front of the, the, the left or the right. Uh, I do it the other way around. So the co-driver then to adapt to that is an amazing skill in itself because it's then like them learning and trying to understand what the driver's doing as well. So fresh, fresh road and you've never been there before, you literally start off in a road going car and you start verbally calling it and they write it down in shorthand. The second, so once you've done that, it could be five kilometers, it could be 50 kilometers and they're writing it down and the spacing in their own shorthand is really important. And then the second pass, they repeat it and you make changes based on experience on the angle, the time, the distance, and that sort of stuff. And then it's game on. So it does become down. Sure, if that road and that stage is used year after year or they haven't changed it, you get the advantage of, well, I competed on it last year. I've done two passes. I get another two passes. Some of your notes can be refined over time. And there's nothing cooler than a driver to hear that that event's only got, you know, there's eight stages the same and only two different. You go, oh, thank goodness for that. We get to, you know, refine the notes. And, and that's an advantage that, you know, if we then go to Japan, and the roads are the same, and Toshi Arai has done that rally two years in a row, and he's got some pace notes, you're rocking up there and you get two passes. So there can be an advantage for them there. Uh, and on the flip side, you go to a, even it could be in their country, they've never used that road before. I know on the weekend, the Forest Rally had a couple of new introductory stages. You know, we talked about old Rally Australia stages. I don't think anyone in the field has been on them to write notes on for a long time. So everyone wrote them from scratch. So you could almost argue there's a fair playing field that no one's got an advantage on being on these roads before so for someone like mike young who drove for us in the subaru he's never done any of those roads so he probably was lucky in the fact he's got heaps of experience in writing notes the first two stages that no one's seen lucky for him when we get to wellington dam and we've got state guys who have been in and around those roads for a long time he's got to work a little harder potentially so um it's a really difficult thing to get right i think that's why you see like I said, no doubt if you're a high-paying executive and you've got this stressful job and you've got a good PA and you change businesses or companies or roles, you'd love to bring your PA in, in with you because you know that's going to work and you can work better as a team. On the flip side, it's no different to rallying. It, look, in Australia, it's a little different because budgets and stuff like that. But in the World Championship, when Auger changes teams, when TANIC changes teams, guess what comes with you? The co-driver. You know, they're the professionals. They're the best in the world. Um, you know, it's seldom you see them change. They might be using an excuse or... 
the, the co-driver's retired and there's a lot of decision-making on who should step in that role. But like I said, Ogier and Ingrassi have been together for every one of their championships. Even Sebastian Loeb now, he goes and does Dakar and brings his co-driver with him. He's come back to the Hyundai team and did a bit with Citroen. He's got Daniel Elena with him again. So that shows how crucial it is. I mean, he's one of the best, well, probably one of the best drivers of all time. And even, you know, plenty of people want to sit with him and lots of experienced people. But yet he knows that would be a, take a little time to gel, a little more time that he doesn't have, you know, in our sport, once again, once we start, we don't have time for excuses or tenths of a second, particularly at WRC level. So um, it's a crazy role. I wouldn't be a co-driver for quids. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's nuts. And, and there's, there's also a saying to go, a co-driver can't win you a rally, but they can lose you one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. Because they're, they're on the times, you know, they, they check in wrong or do something wrong or they call it wrong. They're the first to be hammered by the driver. Don't worry about the fact the driver makes lots of mistakes as well, but, you know, it's really noticeable when a co-driver does it. And when they do a perfect job, if they can do a perfect job, it, it's just expected that they're supposed to do that. <laughs> so it's a, really, it's a really difficult role. Don't tell them I said that because I've been doing that for my whole career, trying to tell them that they're just the ballast. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just a couple of quick ones before I give you back to, to our, uh, our esteemed Shane. Um, weird, weird superstitions like asses of all the all the pros. Yeah. You know, special socks, whatever, um, toilet routine. We've, we've heard it all. Well, I do fall into that, sadly. Um, blue socks and blue jocks. Yeah, um, it's a weird one. It's probably once again a carryover from something my old man did back in the day. He ran uh, back in the time, the Blue Explorer socks. I don't know why I inherited it. I probably shouldn't have done. And that's just something that you do. Becomes a little tricky when FIA brought in the fact you had to run FIA socks because, of course, I go, well, sure is that, so you can't buy blue FIA socks anymore. So, and they're quite thin, the FIA socks, yeah. where so these Explorer socks I'd use always were quite sort of big. Yeah. Um, don't know why I'm admitting to this, but I would run the Explorer socks with the FIA socks over the top. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so, so I've never done a rally without blue socks or blue jocks, as it turns out. Um, that's, I'm sure there's probably other small ones that are drifted in and out. They're the two major ones. Um, Cody and I, who are still good mates, used to joke about this because he'd go, Harry, you can't believe blue socks and blue jocks and blah, blah, blah. When our cars ran a key, nowadays, of course, some cars are push-button start and whatever else. Um, of course, you get a Subaru key. It's pretty a generic key and it would have, even though they wouldn't work, would have the buttons to open the car or the boot or whatever else. Cody would only put that key in a certain way. So he didn't think he had superstitions, but if you walked up to his car and you grabbed his key, and you put it in with the buttons down or the buttons up or whichever way you didn't have it, he would pull it out and put it back in the right way. So uh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, that was one of mine. It's probably the uh, – I'm pretty OCD and clean. I do know at one point, not that I continued carrying with it, but the boys at one point were fascinated how I can be a gravel rally guy in the muddiest rally in the world, yet my side of the car was so clean. The co-drivers would be diabolical because in and out of the car all the time. I'd have a rag all the time that I'd clean my shoes with um, and be in there. My car looked pristine. And the boys used to have on the top of the roll cage, Mr. Sheen. At one point, yeah. I had the name Mr. Sheen as well. So uh, <laughs> I'd wipe my, my, uh, my feet. Uh, going back to someone else is not mine. I think a bit of a motorsport one about green on cars. Um, one of our guys, Steve Wisby, who's unfortunately no longer with us and a really influential guy who helped me in rallying a lot, he was not a fan on green on cars or using green. He would not let us take a green rag in the car. He didn't even like the fact we were sponsored by Castrol because Castrol, of course, had green. And that was uh, going against what he liked. Oh. So I know that's a big one as well, green on race cars. 
Wow. Um, that's that's a cool one. That's, I actually haven't heard that one, so that's that's. I think cool. it could be American. I think it's American. Yeah. But yeah, because he's so funny like... how even though he never sat in it, you know, if I was taking a rag or something, he would never want us to have a green rag in the car because it just yeah, that well. was his. I don't know. There's bananas on boats and all sorts of stuff like that, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, blue yeah, socks so and blue did... jocks is the short answer to mine, though. No, I'd be interested to look up where the, the history of the green one came from because it would be something that would have triggered it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you mentioned your kids before, um, kids' futures, and is it motorsport orientated or what's the, what's happening there? They talk about it. I've got three girls, uh, 16, 14, and 7. The eldest one's always been keen, comes on the rallies and stuff. Uh, very good dancer. I don't know where I'm going to find the time, by the way, because I seem to be bloody always you know, crazy busy. Um, I wouldn't stop them, but I'd be happy for them to do anything. If they really wanted to make money, I should be training them on golf and tennis. You've probably heard that before. Rather than yeah, I say that all the time. <laughs> yeah, I think, I don't know. See, they talk about it, but I just can't see the action plan yet. I, mean, I think they're blaming me partly. I'm starting to do the learner's permit stuff now as a dad, so I'm starting to get a bit of an insight to driving. Um, I did go and test her in a cart once, Olivia, who's my oldest. Um, she didn't do a bad job. Uh, used one of the flat-out carts, and I think he turned to me and said, Dino, you must just give me a credit card and let her have a go. She seems to be enjoying themselves. But they're busy. We'll see what it brings. Maybe we'll do a rally sprint together at some point in Dad's old RS Turbo rally car, that, and we'll just try not to put too much expectation on it, let a co-drive maybe just to see what it's like. Um, saying that, a mate of mine's very soon going to be opening up an indoor go-kart centre in Joondalup with electric carts. Maybe that's going to be the breeding ground for her to uh, see how she goes. But uh, all of them like it, respect it. Uh, whether they're going to be involved, I don't know. Not, not at the moment. But therefore, like I said, apart from me going around the back paddock, uh, I didn't officially start rallying until I was 17 anyway. So she's still got a year or two to go. But I don't know. Yeah. It's a worrying role to have your kids out there. You talked about Alistair McCray to start there, Shane. He chatted to me and said, man, I, I'm talking to you and I'm asking you lots of questions because I just don't want to keep looking at my rally safe app because he said, I didn't realise how hard it was. You know, he has, now has a way bigger respect for his mum who not only had him out there, but of course his dad and his brother out there at the same time. So it is funny that I didn't think about it when my dad uh, had me driving. And I remember at one service park when I was younger, he came up to me and said, oh, by the way, it's very slippery out there because he's in front of me. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I know that dad. Yeah, he's worrying about how I'm driving. That only got better when I was seated in front of him because even though he might have a moment, he'd go, oh, well, Dean clearly not parked there on the side of the road, so he got through there. <laughs> so there is this weird thing about your kids in motorsport. It's, uh, and I know Neil Bates talks about the same thing, no doubt. You know, uh, Molly's mum, Coral, uh, does the same thing. So um, I don't know. I'm not pushing it. We'll see how we go. Cool. <laughs> Sorry, long-winded answers, but I don't no, know. No, no, it's, it's perfect, man. Like it's – and it's um, – yeah, I'm at the – yeah, I've got two young boys and, yeah, hopefully they're really good at golf. <laughs> absolutely. You don't mind being their caddy as well. Yeah, no, absolutely not. <laughs> no, good stuff. But they, they love it. I mean, at the end of the day, Olivia, our eldest, probably into it more. The seven-year-old's a little hard. She was still a little younger. But, you know, we at Maximum Motorsport, you know, it's a family business. Uh, even though we might not be competing ourselves too much anymore, you know, on the weekend, Dad's there, uh, myself. It's not unusual for Olivia to come along and be around granddad and the team and the guys. I think she loves the camaraderie that motorsport brings and, it, and that happens across the board, no doubt. But I think even particularly rallying, there is, because uh, we don't go head to head, 
you know, at the end of the day, it's a bit like golf. You don't go head to head. So it's very rare. You might not like someone. That, that's more of a personality thing than you cut me off and you did and you always hit me. And I think there's a bit of that in, in um, sort of circuit racing. <laughs> Rallying's a bit like, well, at the end of the day, if, you, if you've got, <laughs> yeah, sorry, probably speaking, <laughs> trying to make it sound better than it is. Um, we don't have as much politics in that because, you know, you don't see each other out there. So provided they haven't been cheating or kicking the ball along the ground, it's a bit like golf. You didn't see the guy play his round, but if he, you know, if he, he beat you because he's 12 under par and you're 10, well, you've been beaten. So I think yeah. from that, there's a, a level of family and respect there that I've always known about rallying and no different that maybe he's not there. I don't have enough experience in circuit, but, you know, you definitely hear the stories and the politics and the teams that don't even talk to each other and everything else. So uh, we're very lucky with that. And I think, you know, my kids and family, therefore, it's a great sport from that point of view and why the names that you see in rallying, whether they be as high and as big as McRae or people like the Percivals here who do the light car club and been around the sport forever through lots of generations is awesome because it's, it's a great family sport. Yeah. Ah, cool. Oh, no, awesome talking to you. I really appreciated your, uh, your no. time on <laughs> the way the car moves around and that sort of stuff that really struck a chord with me. And I'm uh, stoked that you pronounce the borough the right way. So, yeah. <laughs> no, when I'm in New Zealand. Aren't we doing this in Australia? So, <laughs> Sorry, Shane, I can't believe I gave him that one. So, uh, yeah, no, Paul Loxley right. will be listening. So just for the record, Paul, it's Subaru. You heard it here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last two questions. Um, don't want to keep you too long, especially after jumping on. Sorry, mate, I've taken up way more time than you probably wanted me to. So. No, look, we've. I think we almost hit three hours with... Um, with the F1 photographer, uh, Mark Sutton. So we almost hit three hours with him. And so, yeah. Okay. Um, well, if I'm a bit boring, mate, just cut me off early. That's all. <laughs> the um, Everyone that gets into motorsport obviously has a, you know, has some sort of, you know, key supporters in their career. And who would they be for you? Okay, so the obvious one's obviously the old man, but I won't harp on him because that's a pretty traditional one. Would you believe, and I've, I've said this in a story before, um, when I went to the UK, clearly went over there, I'm in that Hyundai Lantra, I came back and I was going to do Rally Australia that year. And we basically uh, did a deal to borrow John Farrell's car, who was a client of Maxim Motorsports at the time in Group N. It was my first time to drive a Group N Subaru. I'd driven the old man's legacy, so I had a bit of experience with four-wheel drives on doing Rally Australia in a Group N production car. Um, won't bore you with the details short uh, version is do rally Australia we win a couple of stages for Group N um, the Japanese team at the time and STI so Super Tech International bosses I think were quite amazed that this guy you know this kid who's got some experience but first time in Group N is winning some stages it seemed really strange to them we got you know obviously dad had a Subaru connection we, and we knew them we met up with them after the rally we were able to buy some gear off them etc the guy who managed that uh, was a guy by the name of Yusugi um, he ultimately was sort of the manager of Super Rally Team Japan. Um, what ended up happening from that, I guess, experience was a few years later, I got an opportunity to drive for Super Rally Team Japan in New Zealand and in Japan itself uh, with their mechanics team. Uh, so I drove for them for a couple of years off and on, which seemed odd because I'm driving for Super Australia as well. We get on getting these Japanese gigs. Um, would you believe then I go to uh, get asked to go and go to China? is because Yasugi all of a sudden is now sort of retired from STI, but he's now being sort of employed to show Chinese how to do rallying, particularly Subarus. They're struggling with their current driver to be competitive. He suggests, well, have you thought about this guy in Australia? Um, I get an opportunity to go up there. Um, so to this day, and even then he's been to Australia a couple of times with clients. Uh, his nickname's Whiskey. Lots of people within rallying would know him, but I've been very lucky that, you know, I guess I got opportunities overseas, 
and with the teams like China, which may have come along anyway because of the experience, but he's been influential big time in my career, um, you know, away from dad and family and all the obvious ones, you know, particularly mum and dad and that sort of stuff. So I think that's just a weird one that most people wouldn't have thought about. But I, you know, I sometimes do a story to go, wow, isn't it funny how over a 15-year cycle his name kept coming up and yet, you know, then I would work with him again almost, um, you know, if it was now a retired SDI employee, and but being sort of still used and his experience in rallying, particularly in something like China at the time, which was very new to rallying. So, um, yeah, I, I, I would like to him for some opportunities. And then weird things would happen off the back of that. I'd go and do safety car in the STI Subaru at the ice and snow rally in Japan. Um, I went and did a, a snow experience in Korea for Subaru based on some of that stuff. So even away from competing and driving, um, that connection with Subaru Japan and STI um, helped me to a lot of things and it not tied in perfectly with what I did here within Super Australia as well. So, yeah, fantastic. Now, Rally, obviously, you have a teammate in the side of the car. Yeah. If you were able to have anyone sitting there next to you during a rally or even during tarmac events or even driving for you in the, in the Maximum Motorsport team from any era, any discipline, who would you want that to be? Oh, as a teammate. Wow, I've never been asked this question before. Wow, 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 wow. That's a hard one. Any era. Uh, I'll once again take too long to answer the question. There's a romance, and we have done it before, where myself and my dad would be teammates again. I think particularly now we're a little bit longer, you know, and we're established. would be pretty cool. Um, Cole McRae, it, it sounds... <laughs> He was a big influence for not just us because you know, he was a Subaru Triple Five driver. He won the World Championship in '95. That you know his game and his ex- his exposure helped our sport big time. What I think is interesting about McRae is that his t- his driving style is completely different to mine. <laughs> so um, that would be cool, I guess. Um, Ari Vartanen, I've got to meet him a couple of times. Just a genuinely good guy. Um, that'd be pretty cool, I guess, from once again, a different era and someone I haven't had a lot to do with. You can see it's fairly Subaru-y focused there a bit as well. But um, And then yet, I have no regrets, even though he kicked my backside most of the time, that Cody and I are still to this day good mates. Um, and I think we work really well together to help our team achieve stuff. So I, I still have no hesitations to put him in a car uh, as a teammate. But also, if you said, grab someone, you can't drive it, Dean. Maximum Motorsport need to try and get a really great result out of this particular Subaru. Bloody hell, Crocker could do a good job in anything. I mean, at one point, he won 10 championships in a row, three uh, Asia, uh, Australian championships, four Asia-Pacific championships, and then went and won three side-by-side championships in a 10-year period. His CV is unbelievable. I mean, I, I just think uh, he was a really good talent and, unfortunately, my teammate. So maybe I'd be better to have him and be the team manager and put him in my car and make me look good. But, um, yeah, to ha- have a record like that's pretty cool. Um, so I got a lot of respect for him. There's lots of cool people I raced against and stuff, which I, you know, I've got respect for all of them. Like I said, we were sort of lucky with a sport like that. So, um, but, yeah, love. I think as I'm getting older, I love the names and looking back over the history of some of those big names in, in our sport and, and anyone who can be at the top of that, you know, back in the day doing WRC events, you know, driving those cars back when I guess the safety was a little different and the Group B cars and stuff. And I guess that's why Ari Vartanen resonates with a lot of us because 
one, he transitioned from being an unbelievable guy in a two-wheel drive, you know, escort, then ran in that era of Group B, which we all know, and then even ran for us in Subaru Legacies back in the day and stuff. So, um, you know, I think he's crossed a lot of generations and stuff, you know, won Dakar and all sorts of stuff and has just an amazing guy to tell stories. You just, you know, you can ask him, you know, one question, he can, he can take an hour and, and every minute of it is, 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 is excellence to listen to. So, um, He'd be high up there, but I'm sure, like I said, there's sort of nothing uh, exclusive about some of those. There'd be probably the, the picks of some others as well. Nice. Well, I had a, we had a question sent in, if, uh, which was for Mike Young. Oh, um, here you go. I'm still going to... Isn't ask. he supposed to be the guy sitting here talking at the moment? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but look, he, he rang up, he gave lots of notice, which was good. Um, and that's, that's uh, how we love it. That's our- all you can ask for? Yep, um, but uh, sent off a sent off a couple of questions to a few people saying, "Hey, look, you know, have you got any questions for our guest?" And I had a uh, had one come through, and um, the question was, "Is it true that the deputy clerk of course for the 2020 Make Smoking History Forest Rally is one of the better looking men in the sport?" <laughs> I'm going <gonna have> to <laughs> I'm have to look up who is technically a deputy clerk of course. Uh, so Justin Hunt. Oh Jesus! Does that come from Justin Hunt? That question? Yeah. Mike Young would have said that, right? I got to say, I'm sure I couldn't remember what his official title was. Um, <laughs> lovely fellow. Wouldn't necessarily say he's the best looking guy in the service park. I would have thought. If he was that good looking, he and I would have had different jobs. I would have been on the rally radio, and he would have been doing the TV stuff. Surely. <laughs> uh, good on him. Love him. Oh uh, look. Um... And I was just having a look. The um, PowerPlay Perth is the uh, the electric go karts. Have you had a go on any of them yet? Uh, yeah, well, I, I have had a little bit of a go because, uh, as it turned out, to, to bore you with some more details again, uh, awesome electric Sony karts. Lots of lots of you guys would know what they are. Uh, amazing talking power. But Glenn's also uh, this track's dual track, so it actually's got a ramp and a, everything else in it, which comes from, would you believe, from uh, Europe. So um, what was supposed to happen is this track ramp is all designed and the, the track barriers and everything else, you know, uh, Glenn McNeil's put a lot of work and homework into this over a number of uh, years. And while he's been in Europe competing, he's gone off and checked this out. And I, I guess as mates, we've gone to a few car places around the country at different times uh, off the back of climb the mountain at Bathurst and other stuff. So the short version was, of course, the deal's finally put to bed that you're going to do this. You get the ramp, you get everything sent over in containers and then COVID hits and the, the Italians are supposed to fly in and set this cart track up in 10 days or so. So, of course, you've got this container full of stuff that's a bit like a big Lego set. Um, so he seconded a few mates that he knows quite well, including my old man, who's way cleverer than me with building stuff. And uh, Dad's been there. And they tore all the way to help build this track up and stuff. So I've been down there. Amazing little venue. I mean, I guess the cool thing about electric carts is they're really talky. On this particular track as well, uh, on the on the um, on the concrete, they slide a little bit. We're talking about movement of the cart and grabbing that, so it's awesome. It's not just about grip. Uh, you got this dual ramp set up, uh, really good fun. And of course, when you're in inside, doesn't matter what the weather's going to be, and the thing doesn't smell. So we don't all go back with bloody fuel smell or anything else. So uh, it's just going to be a heap of fun. Um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, like I said, there'll be no doubt some people there really skilled and having a great time, but whether you've got no experience, and I think he's it's from sort of whether you're 10 years old or 12 year old or however high you've got to be to make it to 80 years old, it's going to be a whole heap of fun. So, look, I guess being on the inside running, we have had a chance to have a little taste of it. 
and uh, no, it's going to be going to be awesome. But uh, maybe that'll be my test for my daughters to go. You got to pass the Glenn McNeil School of Karting first, and then we'll work our way up. But uh, no, going to be a heap of fun, and I wish him all the best with it because it's going to be uh, a great little ex- a great little thing. And I think uh, you know, north of the river, full indoor, dual track. I uh, hope everyone gets there and uh, supports him. It'd be great. I think we'll have to. Uh, we found a new location to do our next uh, catch up, Shane. Yeah. Man. yeah. <laughs> I, I think so. I'm sure we can arrange something. I'm sure we can. It'll be a great idea. <laughs> no, oh, look, um, thank you very much for joining us tonight on the extremely late notice. Uh, no problem. And Lou, it's been great uh, listening to all of the stories and everything. Um, where will we see you next? Uh, that's a good question. I'm, I've got a chat, uh, hopefully, meeting with Mike Young uh, tomorrow. We'll see how we go. We're going to try and look at whether we can get to the next couple of state events. Um, I was on the radar to maybe do Forest Rally, so there was an outside chance I was going to have a run, but I put Mike in. He's way faster than me, I reckon. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm due to do some PR or, or media stuff for the Australian Championship, but obviously it's a bit of a moving target at the moment uh, that we know official Australian Championship this year, but you know, in the last week they've announced that they'll try and have an Australia Cup event, bit of a sprint format style thing, which would be pretty cool to get some great cars to. I think it'll be in Canberra in November. Obviously, still a lot of question marks over borders and stuff like that. So, look, at the end of the day, uh, look, I hope to be involved in some form of the Australian Championship doing some of the media stuff next year if it gets up and running. Um, you know, we're in and about with Maximum Motorsport when we're up and running and stuff. And, um, yeah, I've also side to that and what we do at Maximum, we've got a mate of mine who runs a driving tours company in Europe called Ultimate Driving Tours. I've uh, been doing a little bit more of that in the last couple of years, which is a whole heap of fun um, to be driving some of the greatest roads in the world or go to tracks and Grand Prix and stuff like that. So, um, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to make time to fit as much as we can in, but I guess the long and the short, I lo- love love cars, love motorsport. I'm passionate about it. I mean, I'm lucky enough to be have a business a bit based around it as well, and um, we'll be at whatever we can get to. And obviously, I think, um, you know, apart from Cary Rally, which is the next state event, of course, one of the other bigger events for the states, the, you know, Targa West, which is due to be uh, the end of October, uh, in some way, shape or form, I think uh, we're involved in either running cars or doing a bit of media or whatever else. So no doubt, in some shape or form, you'll see us floating around Targa West as well. Fantastic. Well, that brings an end to episode 23 of Behind the Sport with Dean Herridge from Maximum Motorsport. Uh, We'll catch you next week. And Mike Young, baby permitting, will be joining us. Awesome. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Catch you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you very much, man. Really appreciate it.